Uh, we're going to look at detecting the wolves among the sheep. And uh, you'll remember that in 2 Peter, Peter's addressing a very specific problem, and that is that there's a lot of false teachers in churches out there today. And that's still a very common problem. And so he wants to address it. And Peter gets a little bit passionate in this passage. Uh, I think Peter could get irritated easily at people. Uh, I, I've heard him called the apostle of outrageous extremes. And I think that probably describes him, maybe describes some of us. I, I guess of all the disciples, I've always fancied that I was most like Peter. Uh, and that's not a compliment to me or to Peter, quite frankly. Uh, but uh, I, I think he's the one that I identify the most with. But I'm going to ask you if you'd stand in honor of God's word as we read Second Peter 2, verses 10 through 16. Uh, this is from the Lexham English Bible, but uh, I'm sure you can follow along whatever you have. Talking about the false teachers, Peter says, They're bold and arrogant. They do not tremble in awe as they blaspheme majestic beings. Whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring against them a demeaning judgment. But these persons, like irrational animals, born only with natural instincts for capture and killing, blaspheming about things they do not understand, and their destruction will also be destroyed, being harmed as the wages of unrighteousness. Considering reveling in the daytime of pleasure, they are stains and blemishes, carousing in their deceitful pleasures when they feast together with you, having eyes full of desire for an adulteress and unceasing from sin, enticing unstable persons, and having hearts trained for greediness, accursed children. By leaving the straight path, they have gone astray because they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but received a rebuke for his own lawlessness, a speechless donkey speaking with a human voice, restrained the prophet's madness. Let's pray. Father, not really a pleasant passage just to talk about the characteristics of false preachers and teachers, but still a much needed subject for our own spiritual alertness. Father, open our hearts to what you want us to know and make us discerning between truth and error wherever we might hear it. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So Peter's a little passionate that, that what he's using here is some pretty doggone strong language. Uh, he, he's basically saying that false teachers are like animals that have no rational capability. They operate solely on self-indulgence and unthinking passion. They do whatever they think is good for themselves. And, and he says that they cannot think, they cannot reason, they cannot make intellectual contributions that benefit the lives of people around them. This is an invective, which is a strong speech with a lot of emotion behind it. And Peter basically says that the purpose of false teachers is simply to be killed. That's strong language. <laughs> That's really strong language. He says they're like animals that are part of the food chain that die to sustain the life of other creatures. But while the death of animals provides physical food, the death of a false teacher just rids us of a spot and blemish from mankind, that they're mindless, driven by their instincts, and of no real benefit to others. Now, 
what do we know about these false teachers? We don't have a lot of data from this particular time in history to tell us exactly what their theology was, but there are enough comments in 2 Peter that let us know they had what we would call a libertine theology. A libertine theology basically says, do what feels good, live any way you want to, because after all, God's gracious. So don't, you don't need to be righteous, don't need to be holy, just have a good time. Basically, you can be hedonist, you can live for pleasure, and it's okay because God is gracious. It goes directly contrary to the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the epistle to the Romans, where he tells us that we ought to be instead acting and living a godly life in Christ Jesus And we do that because we're saved. We don't do it to try to become saved, but because we're children of God, we ought to act like it. We ought to act like the children of God. So it's it's a do-what-feels-good theology. I mean, Nike for years had the slogan, and I'm sure they still do, it says, just do it. And it's like, it doesn't matter what it is. If you want to do it, just do it. Uh, And this is the idea of libertine theology. I'm just going to do whatever it is I want to do. I'm just going to do it, and that's it. Now, is this a message for today? A fellow by the name of Michael Green wrote prior to the year 2000, he said this, Covetousness, sophisticated arguments, pride in knowledge, gluttony, drunkenness, lust, arrogance against authority of all kinds, and most of all the danger of denying the lordship of the Redeemer, are these not all the paramount temptations of money-mad, sex-mad, materialistic, anti-authoritarian 20th century, and might I add, false teachers. Well, really nothing's changed since that time. They're still the same as they were in that, that particular day. And there, there is a brand of Christianity out there that's intellectually arrogant, decides what it wants to believe without seeing whether it's in line with Scripture. There's this attitude of, of uh, just, just do what feels good. Now, why does Peter get so hyped up on this subject? Why does he get up so, so upset? Now, as we say in East Texas... Uh, When something bothers you in East Texas, you should say, that grits my gourd. And you'll hear me say that every now and then. Uh, There's these gourds that grow on vines sometimes in East Texas. And they've got, got, it looks like a handle on it and then a big bowl at the bottom. And so you cut the gourd, uh, you slice the bottom bowl open a little bit. You let the gourd dry, scoop out all the seeds, and it becomes a dipper. Back used to, you'd go get some cold well water and you'd dip it up in in this, what we called a dipper gourd, and you'd drink it. Uh, between Jacksonville and Frankston, Texas, on the left-hand side of the road as you're going northbound, is a spring that's been coming out the side of uh, the, the, a bank on the side of the road ever since I can remember and probably for a few hundred years before that. And there is actually the state of Texas has made a little uh, cutoff there where you can get off, still be on payment, and get out because people like to stop there with their big... Uh, water bottles, and instead of refilling them at the grocery store and paying for it, they go out there and put their big water bottle and get fresh spring water coming right out the side of the road. So you almost never drive from Frankston to Jacksonville without seeing somebody out there refilling their water bottles. And it's good water. It's good. It's clear. It's clean. And so it's the kind of water that if you had good, cool, clear, clean water like that, you'd, on a hot day, get out your dipper gourd and you would I hold it under there till it filled up and you take a drink. But the one thing you did not want to do with a dipper gourd is get sand or dirt in it. Because then as you're drinking it, those grains of sand get in your teeth and they get between your teeth and your, your mouth feels gritty. And so when somebody from East Texas says, that grits my gourd, it means something's irritating them. 
Well, false teachers grit the gourd of the Apostle Peter. Uh, they get him upset. And the reason they upset him so much is that Peter really has become a pastor. He's really become a shepherd. You will remember that three times Peter denied Jesus Christ when Jesus was going through his trials. And as he denied him the third time, two things happened. Who remembers what those two things were? What's one of them? When he denied Christ the third time while he was still denying him, what happened? A rooster crowed. Okay, that's one of them. What's the other one? I think it's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke, but it said just at that moment, Jesus is walking through the courtyard and he turns and he looks at Peter. That had to be so hard. He heard that sound that Jesus told him he would hear. He says, before you thrice deny me, the rooster's going to crow. And sure enough, that happened. And then he looks and Jesus looks at him across the courtyard and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter feels so bad about himself, I don't even think he thought he could be around the other disciples. But after Jesus died, they finally do get together. They go out fishing. They're in despair. They don't think anything good can come of life. And they see, of course, what looks to be the form of someone on shore. And they hear this word, have you caught any fish? And and uh, they hadn't really caught any, and so he gives them instruction for catching them, and Peter says, it's the Lord, and he just jumps overboard and starts swimming for shore so he could see Jesus. And I think that the Lord must have known how bad Peter hurt and how much in need of forgiveness and restoration Peter was. So three times there on the shore, Jesus tells Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, become a shepherd. Get a shepherd's heart. Get a pastor's heart. Stop worrying about attacking everybody and being mad and thinking about yourself all the time and protect the flock. And I think Peter took this job seriously. I think when he saw something damaging the sheep or the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it grit his gourd. And he protected it just like a shepherd would fight lions and just like a shepherd would fight uh, uh, any other enemy of the sheep, Peter felt called to action. So Peter's going to give us a description, several characteristics to help you understand what a false teacher was. And to give you an idea, in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we've already covered, Peter has two main thoughts for us. You need to know your salvation. You need to know for sure that you received Jesus Christ, that you're not going to heaven because you impressed God or because you worked your way there. You're not going to heaven because some priest at a church works a sacrament from the church and the sacrament saves you. But it's strictly by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our sacrament. He's our sacrifice. And you receive Him as your Savior. And that's the only reason you have an opportunity to go into heaven. And you have to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And secondly, He says, you need to know the Word of God. You need to spend time in the Word of God. People are easily deceived when they don't know the Bible. So you need to spend time in it. You need to read it. You need to memorize it. You need to know the Word. Then in chapter 2, he basically says you need to know what a false teacher is and what they look like because if you don't know them when you see them, you might be influenced by them. 
And then when we get to chapter 3, Peter's going to come back and he's going to once again say, you need to know the Word of God, but then he's going to add something and that is he's going to say, you need to know what sanctification is and you need to know the process by which you will become more holy and more Christ-like. So I'm looking forward to chapter 3 because talking about false teachers isn't all that fun. But let's look at the characteristics of false teachers that it gives us. And the first one is that False teachers are rebellious. Uh, they are rebellious. He says, and especially those who go after the flesh in defiling lust and who despise authority. They, they rebel against authority. They criticize their authority. They're bold and arrogant. They do not tremble in awe as they blaspheme majestic beings. Now see the apostles and godly teachers of all ages since that time have emphasized that we're supposed to live lives that are pure and holy. We're supposed to walk in godliness. We, we don't do that so that we can have everybody look at us and say, oh, look how good they are. Look how pure and holy they are. That's not the reason. We don't do it because we're trying to impress God because quite frankly, God's not impressed with a single person here today. He's not impressed. Uh, why? Because... Sin doesn't impress him, and we've all, last I checked, we're all sinners, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So all we are is, if we're lucky, if we've received Christ, not if we're lucky, but if we are under grace and have received Christ, we are the children of God, but God looks at us in Jesus Christ. We're inside Jesus, and when the Father looks at the Son, He's impressed. If He were to look at me by myself, not impressed. So the Father only accepts me in heaven because I am in Christ. But let's face it, it's not a real popular message to say you need to quit your ungodly ways and you need to live a godly life. In fact, is I would venture to say that the most unpopular sermon recorded in all the Bible is the sermon that Enoch preached that's in the book of Jude. When he says, you ungodly people with all your ungodly deeds and your ungodly ways need to quit your ungodliness. That's, Enoch did not go to the Dale Carnegie School of how to win friends and influence people. Not a popular message. It's certainly not the health and wealth gospel of today where you're told that if you just send an offering in that God will bless you tenfold, He'll bless you a hundredfold and you are taught how to think positively and maybe it started with Norman Vincent Peale and today maybe it's under the guise of Joel Osteen or someone else but the reality is there is a huge sector of the quote, I'll call it the religious market that teaches the health and wealth gospel and does not preach the word of God. But you're more popular if, because it says in the last days men will heap to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. That tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. But the false teachers in the church, they deny holiness standards. They, they demonstrate their desire to indulge in the flesh and they have this message, oh, you need to focus on becoming all that you can be. God wants to give you health. He wants to give you wealth. He doesn't worry about you living holy because you have grace in Jesus Christ. You've already been forgiven. So eat, drink, and be merry. That's the message. But it's a, a false message. The next thing Peter tells us about false teachers that they are self-willed. He says these teachers are self-willed. In other words, on the throne of their heart, they put themselves. They don't put Christ. 
They put themselves, they, they live by their own desires, they make choice based on their own lust. They neither think nor care about the will of God-given authorities. I know a lot of people who make decisions and never once think about how it makes their authority feel, and whether or not it glorifies their authority, or whether or not their authority is going to be disturbed by the decisions they make. He says they're stubborn, they're obstinate in behavior. They do not tremble about mocking. They will attack biblical authorities. They will speak evil of others, not thinking a thing about it. They will attack God's very truth. They'll call his revelation a myth. They'll call the virgin birth a legend. And they despise the atoning work of the Son of God. And these false teachers have never been born again, so they follow the flesh even under the guise of their culture and learn. Let me give you an example. Here's four false teachers for you. And this is an extreme example. These are four of the most prominent men in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons. And of course, Joseph Smith is the founder of that. Joseph Smith made this statement. He says, if Jesus had a father, can we not believe that he had a father also? I despise the idea of being scared to death at such a doctrine for the Bible is full of it. Basically, he's saying that God the Father had sex with Mary and that's where Jesus came from. It wasn't a virgin birth. Uh, Brigham Young basically said the same thing and he says it's very dangerous to baptize and confirm females otherwise it would give the Holy Ghost to them lest he should beget children. Uh, he didn't baptize women because of that uh, because he uh, once again they believe that uh, God basically had sex with Mary and that's how Jesus was born. Joseph Fielding Smith, he was not born without the aid of man and that man was God. That man was God. They called God a man. If you haven't heard it, Brigham Young had a famous saying that says, as God is, man will become as man is God once was. In other words, they evolve. You evolve from man to God. I used to, a couple of times, I had the occasion to spend the night in the home of a friend of mine who was Mormon when I was living in East Texas but working in Dallas, and I'd go home with him. And over his mantle had a big picture of a man and woman dressed in white robes floating among the stars looking at all the planets because they had just become gods and they're trying to decide which planet to go create man on and they would become the gods of that planet. And that's Mormon theology and it's even ensconced in their artwork. Uh, and B.H. Roberts once again said something very similar uh, to all the others. They deny the virgin birth of Christ, which would mean that, that uh, Christ uh, isn't who the Scripture says He is. And that they have deceived countless people and, and still do uh, to this day. Now, another characteristic of false teachers is that they have a disrespect for spiritual authority. Now, who is our spiritual authority, first of all? Well, obviously... God is our spiritual authority. The Word of God is our spiritual authority. We're supposed to, the Word of God is supposed to be our only guide for life and practice. But Hebrews 13 also tells Christians that you obey them that have the rule over you, talking about godly pastors. He says, for they must give an account for your souls. So he says, if you have a godly pastor and he's following the Word, we'll follow him too uh, and, and listen to what he's saying because he's going to give an account for your soul someday. And, and, and God's going to say, well, did you teach them the whole Word of God? Did you, did you preach to them faithfully? Did you give the truth to them even when it wasn't popular? And, and those pastors will have to answer those questions as to whether they did that. And then God will determine who's responsible for Maybe the failures. Was it someone who failed to teach you or was it your failure to obey? 
They hold authority and contempt. They're presumptuous and self-willed to the point that they speak slander of the angels and of God's ministers. Peter calls them these higher authorities, these, but it can refer both to angels and to the ministers of God. And Peter makes an interesting statement. He says, even the angels, now obviously the angels of God are more powerful than we are. They can do stuff we can't do. They are in the very presence of the throne room of God. They actually see God face to face, which we can't do yet. So in just about every respect, angels are pretty cool. They're pretty awesome. That we feel like they're a little notch above us. Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there's a day coming that redeemed mankind will rule and reign over the angels. I believe that mankind is God's highest creation. I believe Lucifer fell, and this isn't in the Bible. This is just my personal opinion. I want to make sure you know that. I believe Lucifer fell after God created man, and it bothered him that God had created something higher, something that had different capacities than what he had. And I think he's been jealous of that ever since and trying to destroy us ever since. But here's an interesting statement. He says, even the angels don't say bad things about the fallen angels. Even the angels don't say bad things about sinful men. Because let's face it, we're all sinful. The angels don't go around saying bad things about us, and yet these false teachers will go around talking down godly pastors, talking down angels, maybe even talking down the Son of God Himself and trying to bring Him down in their theology until He's more on their level. He says they do something that even the angels wouldn't do. And we'll prove this to you in a minute. False teachers teach that indulging your lust is actually the will of God. It's kind of like you need to do what feels good because it's grace and God wants you to be happy. I love the Declaration of Independence. I love the Constitution. But some of the words have changed meaning since those documents were written. One of the words that changed since those historical documents were written, is that all men were endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if you actually go back and read the, the documents surrounding the, the creation of the Constitution, the creation of the Declaration of Independence, you'll find out that what they meant by the pursuit of happiness was the pursuit of private enterprise, to have your own business, to be able to go out and make your own living, to derive the profits from it and not have the government take it all away from you, which is fascinating because there are actually Democrat representatives right now that are proposing a 90% income tax. I don't know how you'd feel about that, but that would grit my gourd. <laughs> okay, it would make me unhappy. Uh, but that's what they want to do. And, and there are countries where that is, is actually the point. The problem is I think a lot of people today read that and think, oh, we're supposed to just, it says right there in the Constitution, we should just do whatever makes us happy. I, I think if I had the chance to go back and change history a little bit, I'd have them write pursuit of holiness instead of pursuit of happiness. That would have been maybe a suggested change, but it never occurred to our founding fathers that we'd have anything like what we have today. But they would call, false teachers would call this living for what feels good and living to gratify your lust, they would call that spiritual freedom. And that is what is today the health and wealth gospel. So essentially, 
These teachers are doing what angels themselves would not do. The angels don't even criticize. Fact is, interesting story in the book of Jude that we read about. Apparently, after Moses died, there was a dispute about the body of Moses. And the dispute was between the archangel Michael and Satan. And it was what to do with the body of Moses because remember, Moses died before he could go in the promised land because he disobeyed God. He struck the rock twice, which ruined a type of Christ because Christ only died once for us and God takes his symbols very seriously. And so he didn't go in the promised land, he dies. But then where's his body going to be buried? And Michael the archangel and Satan get in an argument about it. See, Satan could have put his spirit inside that dead body and for a period of time have raised Moses up and he could have led astray the entire nation of Israel. I mean, Moses would have still been a cadaver, but he would have been indwelt by the prince of all the demons. And he could have led Israel astray. Michael didn't want to see that happen. Michael wanted Moses to get a proper burial. But it's interesting that when you read Jude 8 and 9, it says this, Despite this, Despite that, in the same way also these men, because of their dreams, defile the flesh and reject authority. Peter's, Jude's also talking about false teachers. And blaspheme majestic beings. But Michael the archangel, when he argued with the devil, disputing concerning the body of Moses, listen to this, did not, did not dare to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. So Michael would not speak evil of Lucifer. He just said, the Lord rebuked thee. In other words, let's leave it to the Lord's judgment. Let's leave it to the Lord's power. And, and when, you, when you say the Lord rebuke you, that's as strong as it gets. It doesn't get any stronger than that. But Michael didn't even dare say a bad thing about Lucifer. And yet false teachers will speak evil of the angels. They'll speak evil of godly pastors. They'll speak evil of their authorities. You see, false teachers are always on the attack. When angels refuse to criticize even fallen angels... False teachers know no bounds in their attack on anybody who disagrees with their teaching. Can you think of anybody like that today? Surely we're all more tolerant than that day. Can you even imagine somebody who instantly says, if you don't agree with me, you're a heretic, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're all these things. Surely that would never happen today. But this is the way false teachers operate. They attack the notions of spiritual authority. They attack personal holiness. They, they attack... The, the ministers who to them are ugly but to us are precious and godly. They are totally ignorant of the very things they blaspheme. Peter says this, But these persons, like irrational animals born only with natural instincts to be captured and killed, that's what he means for capture and killing, blaspheming about things that they do not understand. Well, then he says, goes a bit further, he says, False teachers are animalistic. They're just like animals. They're like brute beasts. They, they operate from instinct. They lack uh, ability to overcome their sin nature. They're locked into that sin nature. They do not make rational choices. They don't think about the consequences in advance. They don't check to see what God says. They just follow their desires and they do whatever comes naturally to them. In fact, Peter says they are belonging to their nature. They're belonging to their nature. They follow the natural desires like animals in a jungle. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this. There is this prevailing thought in our society today that men can't help themselves. They can't remain faithful to one woman 
for 40 years or 50 years or 60 years. They can't help themselves. It's within their nature to have multiple partners over time, and it, we just need to accept that. And that is now the commonly held belief in society. It's, it's what's in every sitcom. It's what's the... the uh, if you listen to the mainstream news media, this is, this is the way it is. They're belonging to their nature. And Peter says, like beasts, they will perish. In fact, as he actually says in Greek, it's interesting, he says, in their corruption, they too shall be corrupted. He says they're, they're in their own corruption and they're going to be corrupted by their own corruption. And I believe that's a reference to their eternal judgment. False teachers obviously are also deceiving. So Peter says, And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, verse 13, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. I'm sure glad we don't have daytime riots anymore. We're past that now. Spots they are in blemishes, sporting themselves, sporting themselves. In other words, having fun in. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. In other words, he says they would come to church. When they'd have the Lord's Supper, they'd have a, quote, love feast afterwards. And they would go in and promote uh, a, a life of licentiousness. And they would say, you got grace. And in Corinth, they would bring the prostitutes of the temple to the love feast. And they would pervert it by making prostitutes available after what should have been the Lord's Supper. And that's why Paul wrote right, so seriously to the Corinthians and tells them that because they've perverted the Lord's Supper, some of them were asleep, some, some were sick, some were weak, and some were dead because they had not treated the Lord's Supper with honor. And, and, and basically it says these false teachers didn't even try to hide their own immorality. They did it and then they said, hey, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. I can do what I want. And basically that was the thing. They, they marred the Lord's Supper by their very presence. And then Peter says that they are chronic sinners. They're chronic. They can't get out of it. Uh, if you were to, if you're a musical person, uh, the, I would call this a series of staccato phrases. Short, punctual phrases to condemn these heretics. And I believe Peter removes all doubt in this passage that these false teachers have ever been saved. I think he would agree wholeheartedly that they're not. He says this about them. Their eyes consistently look toward sinning. Now, if you are saved, you're still going to sin. You're still going to mess up. You're still going to struggle with your fleshly desires. But you won't live in a habitual pattern of sin after sin after sin after sin where you're just controlled by your desires. You will have the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, letting you know what's right and wrong. He says they, look, they, they, they consistently look towards sinning. Their eyes are full of an adulteress. Uh, I spelled wrong on the slide. My apologies. I was dictating and not spell checking. But he says that it's like your eyes are full of an adulteress. That's all you see. In other words, these men, false teachers of men, every time they saw a woman, the only thing that they could think about was how to commit immorality with her. They were so driven by their lust. And he says they only think of adultery when they see women. They never cease to sin, which probably I think means that they're constantly trying to fulfill their lust. But habitual sinning does not mark somebody that's been born of God, that's born again. Now, if you went forward in a church years ago and you, you said that you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're up there because your buddy's doing it or your girlfriend's doing it or somebody else is doing it and you're doing it because it's a religious thing to do, you see others doing it and you do it, but it's not because you really realize that you're a sinner. It's not because you really realize that you need Jesus Christ to forgive you 
then you might still be in the habit of sinning. But listen to what John says. Everyone who is fathered by God, in other words, you've been born again, does not practice sin. And in Greek it says does not continually practice sin. Yes, we all sin, but we don't live in it. Before we're saved, we live in it. We do it all the time. After we're saved, we might still fail sometimes, but it's no longer our habitual practice. It says because his seed, talking about Jesus Christ, resides in him and he is not able to sin. And again, that's a present tense verb in Greek. It means not able to continually live in sin because he's been fathered by God. Here it is. If you're really a child of God, you can't continually live in sin because the reality is you'll feel guilty. You'll feel miserable. Because you have Jesus Christ inside you. You have His Holy Spirit inside you. And He's not going to leave you alone. You might sin, but you're going to feel bad about it. And you're going to know you need to repent. And you're going to know that you need to course correct. But false teachers have an aim to seduce others. In fact, is it's just their hearts are exercised in greed. Now, I'm a big fan of exercise. Uh, we just recently, Arthur and I got through setting up a gym in the garage. And the reason for that was multifold. I, I did enjoy going and working out at the gym, but now with COVID, you don't know if whoever touched the dumbbells last uh, wiped them off with a sanitary wipe. You don't know if he might have wiped his nose first and then picked up the dumbbells. And so you're a little freaky about that. And it was just a kind of a great waste of money for me to be, have a gym membership and not go up there. So we called and we canceled that membership. And uh, but we have a machine in the garage now. We've got a weight bench in the garage. We've got dumbbells in the garage. We've got a place we can do push-ups in the garage. Uh, the only thing I haven't solved yet is needing to air condition the garage because I don't like sweating that much. But anyway, we've got something we can work out. We can go out and we've had a few cool days, and Arthur's been more diligent at using it than I have, so y'all can go by later and comment on his biceps or his deltoids. I'm sure that'll make him feel good. Uh, but the reality is exercise is good for your body. But it's interesting here when he says that they have their hearts exercised or greed, he actually uses the Greek word from which we get gymnasium. He says they've been in a gymnasium where every machine, everything that they do is calculated to the same purpose, that is to feed their sensual desires. They have their hearts exercised in greed to take advantage of others. They practice their skills to deceive. They take advantage of others. In other words, a false teacher he doesn't just try to deceive you. He tries to get better at it. He doesn't just try to, 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 to get money from you. He tries to get better at it. Uh, he wants to take every advantage he can. So they're chronic sinners. And, and with respect to money, they're also mercenary. They're in it for the money. He says, by leaving the straight path, they've gone astray because they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Boser, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but received a rebuke from his own lawlessness, a speechless donkey speaking with a human voice restrained the prophet's madness. Now, you may remember this story from Numbers chapter 22 through 24. It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is... Uh, uh, that Balaam had been hired by a foreign king, the king of the, the Moabites, in, to pronounce a curse on Israel. And every time he would try to open his mouth to curse Israel, God would only let blessing come out. So that, that tells me that, that isn't it cool that God can supersede what a man tries to come out of his own mouth and still get glory out of it. So that was, that's an interesting aspect of the story for me. 
It's also an interesting thing because if you've heard me teach on the tabernacle and you've seen my slides, you know that the 12 tribes of Israel camped either due north, due south, due east, or due west. We have the number of people in each tribe, and if we graph that number of where they were in the tribe, and we realize that all of them had their tents lit up at night, and we realize that there's a, a fiery pillar of fire that hovered over the tabernacle in the middle of the night, you know that when Balaam went out there at night to curse the nation of Israel, there was a giant glowing cross in the valley before him. It's amazing. I, I love that story. And I would, I would have used the slide, but I thought, no, nope, we don't have time. I also think it's interesting that he's riding along and the donkey sees that there's an angel waiting to take judgment on Balaam. He's got a sword and he's ready to cut Balaam down in his tracks and the donkey didn't go on. And so he beats the donkey, he kicks the donkey, he hits the donkey, takes the reins and he slaps the donkey between the ears. And then suddenly the donkey turns around and it's the last time anything that's either a donkey or that is symbolized by a donkey said something smart. He turns around and says, why are you beating me? What have I ever done to you to beat me? Do you not know that the angel of God stands here ready to judge you? And basically Balaam had gone, as Peter puts it, he'd gone insane. Because he'd forgotten that God gave him the ability to prophesy. He'd forgotten that he was supposed to be out there serving God. He just suddenly shifted his whole point of view. And all he wanted was the money the king was offering. And that donkey saved his life. Finally turns out in the story, and this is the tragic part of that story. But it may be the most instructive part. And that is that when Balaam couldn't curse Israel... He pulls the Moabite society and says, listen, I'll tell you how to ruin Israel. Here's what you do. You get the Israelite men to commit illicit physical relationships with your Moabite women and they can start worshiping the Moabite gods in addition to their own God and God will withdraw his blessing from the people. He'll withdraw his protection from the people. And that worked. All you have to do is look at history from that point on and you see Israel sliding down the tubes of compromise and God withdrawing His protection. But Peter believes that false teachers have a form of insanity because they live for lust and lucre or, or money instead of for something that will benefit them in all eternity. So, to wrap up, what's this mean for us? Well, in 2 Peter 1 that we've already covered, Peter says you need to know for sure that you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. No religion, no second gift, no sacrament of the church will ever get you into heaven. You will go into an eternity apart from Jesus Christ unless you've received Him as your Savior. That's it. Do you really want to spend eternity away from God? And he says then you need to know your Bible. It needs to be part of you. You need to read it. You need to listen to it. Somebody wrote me this last week uh, and said that rather than reading the Bible, they'd been listening to it because they heard things that they wouldn't see when they're reading. And I perfectly identify with that. I like listening to the Bible in the morning because I will hear things and I'll think, wow, is that really in there? I need to go back and read that story. Now, I will read my Bible too and when I study it, uh, I, I get a lot out of it. But there's something about hearing the Word of God. And after all, faith comes by what? By hearing, and hearing by the what? The Word of God. So it's important that you listen to it as well. So listen to it. We've got all kinds of technology for that. Read it, but you need to know the Word of God because if you don't know it, 
then you'll fall prey to false teaching. Then in this chapter, and we're not done with chapter 2 yet, he tells us how to recognize these false teachers because it helps if we can recognize. Uh, they train security agents at the airport to be alert to certain things before people get on flights. And they're not allowed to racially profile, but they know other things to look for. And uh, they must know what they're doing because on our flight coming home from Florida, I think they had to wand down Harmony. And we all know how suspicious my daughter Harmony looks. And so they obviously thought something was wrong and they're scanning her, wanding her every way. To You don't want Harmony on a plane looking like that because she could be mean. You just never know. And so, you know, they train people how to look for dangers, and they also teach them to randomly scan for people. Uh, but we need to know what a false teacher looks like. We need to know what the characteristics, and so that's what he's given us today. And then in the next chapter, when we get there a few Sundays from now, he's going to tell us again, yes, you need to know your Bible. That's important to Peter. You need to know your Bible. But then he's going to also say, you also need to understand how you yourself can become more holy. See, it doesn't really do us a lot of good to know how to avoid false teachers if all we're going to do is stay exactly like we are. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hands. This is rhetorical, but I want you to answer in your heart. How many of you know in your heart that you're as good of a Christian as the Lord wants you to be? That you have your spiritual act together, and then when God looks at your life, He's pleased with what He sees. I can't raise my hand for that. I am glad that I stand in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and when God looks at me, He sees me in Christ because that's the only way He'll ever be pleased with me. But I also know that my prayer is by this time next year, I'll be closer to God than I am now. I pray by this time next year that I'll be closer to my wife than I am now. I I pray that that love deepens more and more as time goes on. And then... When we do these things, we'll have protection against false teachers. I want to close with this kind of cool-looking graphic before Steve comes back and leads us to sing Amazing Grace. And that is this idea that we need to put on the whole armor of God. We, we know that we're supposed to war a good warfare, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. We're to be characterized by righteousness. We're supposed to endure, but to do that we have to put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and hold the shield of faith which is able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Our, we need to be wearing the belt of truth and our feet need to be shed with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need all of that so when the devil throws his fiery darts that we're protected. And how's he going to try to attack us? How are we to fight? What do we have to fight against and overcome? Well, he's going to send false teachers. He's going to encourage us to be disobedient, deceitful, deniers, to be thieves, to be liars. He's going to bring up malice and hatred in our hearts and an unkind tongue inside of our lips. He's going to get us to live for our flesh and live for ourselves. It's a battle. It's a warfare. And one of the weapons that Satan uses is false teachers which is why it's so important for us to recognize them. The good news for us is that God has given us an amazing grace, isn't it? And so as we sing this song to conclude our service this morning, um, I want you to think for just a moment how grateful you and I should be that we don't have to impress God to go to heaven because if we did, there wouldn't be a person here that would make it. 
The only thing that impresses God is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way we go to heaven is if we are in Christ. And so if you haven't made that decision to do that, or if you have doubts whether you've ever done that, don't leave today. Come talk to me. Let's make sure that you've done it. Let's make sure you've received Christ as your Savior. Would you stand, please, as we sing number 147?